1: dope black podcast this is the dope black dad podcast my name is marvin harrison we are here it is actually very early in the morning this is probably the second earliest podcast we've ever done in the history of podcasts but we are dedicated we are dedicated men fathers and black people and speaking of black people i'm joined this morning see how i did that the caveat introduced i'm joined this morning by the is it fair to is it uh, is it author is it the curator is it the editor i know it's on the front it said edited by what how do i set how do i present the context of your greatness this morning king marcus okay i just
2: referring to i was just waiting to know which of us you were referring to
1: <laughs> colin's grandmother that's who we were talking about who uh-huh. sees things <laughs> so so yes i'm the editor fantastic we're joined today by the editor of Black British Lives Matter, Mr. Marcus Ryder, and very special guest, Colin Grant, who wrote a chapter on fatherhood. The first and most important question, Marcus. We've shared space before. Why was I not invited into this chapter? We'll move Colin out of the way for a second. I know some things about fatherhood. Why was I not invited? Please answer for yourself on our podcast.
2: That's that's a really easy one. Basically, we've got the paperback edition coming out um, in April. We will have a podcast accompanying that. We will be inviting you onto the podcast, and uh, we're saving the best till last. Si- These are go, on, so go. On. So, so obviously, you know, we didn't want you to overshadow all the other contributors. So, you're coming onto the podcast in April. Here's the, you're the first person I am
1: formally inviting right now onto the podcast in April i would like to formally say this is one of the reasons why marcus Ryder has clearly carved out a successful career for himself because he has charmed the boots off me when i came in with a clear objective to hold him to account as to why he was not having me on this chapter but colin good morning thank you so much for joining us this morning how are you i'm reasonable
3: thank you very much marvin
1: (laughs) i need to understand the context of reasonable and for me you feel like someone that has a, a great presence for, yeah, I would so like to understand what well, the context of reasonable rather than the stereotypical good or I'm doing very well or I'm fine
3: well the ignition has failed on my cooker but it requires a, a torch or a match to be lit to strike and get some heat for the water to be boiled but there are no matches today so I've had no hot water or coffee so I'm only reasonable wow. until I find a match later on but I'm very Maybe, excited to be joining you th- you guys this morning, nonetheless.
1: I feel the match is going to be sparked now through this wonderful yeah. conversation. Um, first and foremost, I do have to investigate, Is this are you in a different time zone? Because I knew when I grew up, everything was done by matches. Are you still in that time zone? Or are you with us in modern times and you just have a faulty cooker?
3: Um, I think it was, uh, who was it now? There's an American writer, William Faulkner, said... Uh, the past is not past; it's not even over. So I live both in the past and the present, I think.
1: <laughs> I feel I need to actually have some sort of herbal tea with you and really understand a lot more of the things that you represent because I feel I'm enjoying your answers today. Um, so, Marcus, you've written this book, Black British Lives Matter. Uh, as a black person, I would say that I would feel comfortable in saying that I know this. <laughs> but why do you think this book is important to be written at this particular time?
2: Um, you kind of summed it up. It's the it's the why question. Invariably, when we talk about um, Black Lives Matter, we are talking about equality. We're talking about the ways in which our lives are um, don't matter. We talk about all the racism that is heaped on us, the racial inequalities, and we talk about our injustices. And that's really important. You know that we recognise that we acknowledge. The racism that we acknowledge the inequalities we acknowledge the struggle we have to and it's a constant fight but at the same time what we need to do is look at why why do, why are our lives important not just what only why do they matter why are our lives important you know so it's one thing you know if there is racism and there is racism in the media industry that stops people like yourself um uh, producing podcasts, you know, the number of black people who are behind the camera and behind and actually doing radio and at the BBC or ITN or wherever, you know, it's very low and we have to fight that. But your podcast is not just about um, getting access to the BBC. Your podcast is qualitatively different. As a black podcaster, you are going to create something different. And that is important. And so it's it's about acknowledging and trying to um, articulate how we are different, how our lives actually contribute something different, new and unique. You know, so it's, you know, with Black fatherhood, we are not just white fathers with a bit more melanin. You know, we are actually contributing something different. As a Black podcaster, this is not going to be the same as a... White podcast on fatherhood, but just with a bit more melanin. You are actually going to be doing something different. And so it's actually looking as to why are you unique? Why are we
1: important? It's incredible You seem to have assembled An all-star cast Like I think If this was the Black Avengers This is probably Pretty much could save anything You have uh, Kit DeWall in here You have Nadine White uh, Incredible journalist uh, He's an independent Obviously Lenny Henry um, Probably the most iconic Black person on TV For the last 30 years Uh, Dr. David Ajayi Whose architecture Just you know Made incredible things um, Leroy Logan uh, History uh, as, a, as a senior police officer Alexandra Wilson Barrister Reverend Cole Who I love Dawn Butler who's incredible Like this is literally Like What type of phone book Do you have And now I understand more why I'm not in this book Nels Abbey who we love Kwame Kwe Amar like Michelle Moore Kehinde Andrews this is an incredible uh, cast how important was it to have these particular voices and and I don't want you to like say who your favourite child was was there someone whose contribution particularly stood out for you so first of all I think that black British community
2: is full um, replete in in Avengers you know so if none of these people, its none of the people that you mentioned had, had agreed there's another hundred people that we could have invited that if they'd been in it, you'd be saying the same thing we are, the Black British community is so full of incredible people that yes, we're really fortunate that these people agreed, but you know um, there, we've got so many amazing people in, in our community that we would have, whoever we had you know, I think we would have had the Black Avengers. Um, in terms of a favourite child, yeah, I'm I'm really sorry, and I shouldn't say this in in front of Colin, who contributed a, a wonderful chapter. But in terms of a favourite child, um, Doreen Lawrence's chapter, um, which is on which is kind of the mirror in many ways to Colin's chapter, which is on why Black mothers, um, Black British mothers, matter. Um, That chapter, every time I read it, I did a reading of it the other day at an event and I had to choke back the tears and literally had to choke back the tears and I was slightly embarrassed because people must have thought, you didn't write this chapter. This isn't your story. You've edited it. You must have read it a hundred times, which I have. Why are you choking back tears? But it's just articulating it um when you're reading it, the the pain comes through, the importance comes through easily my my favorite chapter. There are other ones where I'm intellectually challenged, other ones which are incredibly interesting, other ones which are also really emotional. But yeah, Doreen Doreen Lawrence's chapter, she's an amazing woman, um, absolutely iconic, a legend, and yeah, her chapter's fantastic.
1: Colin do you have a rebuttal for that I think it's hard to, to surpass Dorian Lawrence and her contributions um, and the space that she holds but I do think as far as we should try do, do you have a rebuttal for that Colin
3: no no I fully endorse what Marcus has said I love Doreen's chapters as well I love so many of the chapters I was very keen when I signed up to uh, ask Marcus who else is going to be on board because my mother always said to me be careful the company that you keep and I think I'm in good company with this book
1: Fantastic Colin can you tell us A little bit more About your story And then going to Sort of how that Contextualised into your chapter My
3: story My general story Or my story about my father Yeah
1: Like also How did you meet Marcus That's that's a really good Oh It's always an interesting one
3: Yeah I probably bumped into Marcus In the BBC But also Marcus Used to uh, hold These wonderful barbecues In the summer With his brother Matthew And I was very fortunate To be invited Many many years ago Um, We have a few Mutual friends And uh, yeah, we, uh, Marcus scaled the dizzy heights of the BBC much higher than I did. But I was uh, following uh, way, way, way behind him. But I was always admiring of him and admiring what he was doing. So when he um, approached me, I was uh, I didn't hesitate to say yes. So I've written a few books, as you may know, Marvin. I've written five books, and they've all focused on Afro-Caribbean people in some regard, or Africans in the diaspora. And in a way, this is uh, a continuation of that, this book, Black British Lives Matter, I, I see as part of my own particular canon in a way, part of part of the, the greater canon or part of the canon that we are, are positing, not necessarily in contrast to, but uh, we're plowing our own fields. We're, we've got wonderful rich seam of material and lives to which we can um, amplify through the many voices that Marcus has brought together.
0: Mm.
1: And just a little bit more about your story and, and kind of leading into a chapter the, sorry,
2: sorry Marvin to in, interrupt But Colin's also evidence of why um, black parents matter Because the bit of the story which he hasn't said Which I, which I love Is that even though we met I can't, we, It's been so long I can't actually remember how we met like, One of the reasons our friendship has been so strong And has kept going Is because of my mother Mm. And so what has happened is that my mother has a, um, has a book club and she reads and she loves Colin's work. And uh, so she actually invites Colin. Every time she reads one of Colin's books, she invites him to the book club. She, um, I think it's, it's Christmas is, is coming. I'd be surprised if she hasn't once again, um, baked Colin, a Jamaican black, black cake. Um, can tell so your mother, that I also like that. <laughs> all right, well, you, you, you need to write a book. Send it yeah. to my mother. Get onto a book club, all right? And Colin yeah, yeah. and my mother have this—you know—Colin is the um, the child I'm that a, she wished she had. You no, know? It's, uh, no absolutely. She, <laughs> its its an amazing friendship that she's I'm, that they've developed.
3: I'm number third son is the way I see it. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, uh, whenever a, a Mar- Marlene is in the audience and after the event has happened, I always introduce her as my other mother. Mm. And, and yeah, she's a great booster. And in a way, when I think about writing, I think about people like Marlene and my own mother, Ethlyn, they're definitely at my elbow when I write. Mm. And I always hark back to this notion that you'll hear again and again in Jamaica, do not be a carried down artist, bring people up. So that's my modus operandi, I suppose. I want to bring people up through my writing.
1: Mm. What's really beautiful about that is that there's this almost inherent thing. And I don't know if it's blackness, but it's, I only know it through the lens of blackness where you almost like at your family is my family. And it's very, mm. very normalized to honor people's parents in that particular way, but also build your own independent relationship with them. And, you know, I really do want black cake. So if I have to find a new concept to write a book about, I will, and I will send it over just for the purpose of black cake. Um, j- just for the audience who may not know what black cake is, I think it's very important to explain. Could you just like identify the joys of black cake for our audience, please? Sure. It is
2: basically a fruit cake, which um defies the laws of physics and chemistry because somehow you're able to put more alcohol and rum <laughs> into the cake than it sh- should be actually be humanly possible um and it's eaten at christmas time it was uh i had black cake for wedding for my wedding um so so yeah it's when you say fruitcake people think it's You know english people think it's a a simple fruitcake but it's it's a west indian tradition that i've i've got a very small book about the history of of black cake and it is culturally Mm. really important to the to the caribbean and so it's a cultural tradition where you get it in nearly all the different caribbean anglophone countries i'm not sure if it's in guadeloupe and martinique um but it's a important part of british or sorry of caribbean um anglophone culture
1: can I just identify The two key, key things To a black cake Because one You're really meant to Soak your fruit For mm-hmm. about a year It's a real thing So you soak your fruit In a jar With alcohol in it For a whole year And then you blend them these are the most important things when you have that cake it is a experience it does things to your body things come alive that weren't alive before you may actually get a little bit tipsy off the back of it also um it's how Colin, my parents could you ta- introduced me to
2: to alcohol <laughs> yes. Seriously, but you, you, you you talk to other people and they say oh we had a glass of wine and it was watered down and, and that's how little johnny first got his taste of alcohol now nah. the way i got my first taste of alcohol was black
1: cake at Christmas and it's rum as well so it's not even like you know this it's sometimes brandy if you're if other, other people sometimes are brandy in it, but like it's actually rum so it's not even a light start <laughs> so um Colin, could you tell us a little bit more about your chapter and and, and what approach you took to it?
3: Yes, uh, my chapter is about the importance of black British fathers um I have a father and I have a grandfather. And and I was thinking a lot about my own father when I was writing that chapter and to chart how I had either followed him down his particular path or diverted from his path. Mm. But I should uh, begin by saying that I owe my father a lot. Um, My education was funded by marijuana. You may or may not know that. My father was a small-time ganja dealer Mm. and he recognized that I had good brains, but I was going to be destined for the failing State school, so they got together and found a way to get me into a private school, and here I am now. Mm-hmm. So, what's curious about my father is that uh, he obviously th- thought about the possibility of social mobilization through education, um, but also there was this slightly um, undertug of um, introducing a young child to the perils of marijuana. So, I was very interested in the kind of ambivalence of parenthood that my father exhibited. And my chapter is about the idea that actually you do what you can. Um, Do not criticise the man until you can walk in his moccasins, the Native Americans say. Mm. And I see that a lot of the approaches that I've taken in my own uh, children has in a way been informed um, by this seriousness of my own father in his own particular way to bringing us up in this cold, forbidding state in which he found himself after migrating here in 1959.
1: Can I just ask a question? And this is this is also is it's based in 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 true curiosity, but also I think it's important for people to hear. It, you know does does that how you got here or what the methods in which your father took to get you here does it dishonor how you got here in some way and I mean that to say if we look at someone like Jay-Z who said that he met you know he had 9900000 before he was an, an artist and you know Diddy's father was very well known to be connected to Nikki Barnes and Frank Lucas or you know whatever the historic reference is now that they stand here today and someone like Jay-Z is helping Obama get into the office you know that transition in a lifetime of an individual's acts. It wasn't actually your act, but at the same time, you know, it is, and, and I suppose let me add a bit more context. The root of it is there's a lot of pride in, in blackness and about how people got places. But at the same time, we all kind of, is there's an element of maybe potentially coloring in the gray to get through how you get through. How, how do you view that experience of, of, and that connection to your personal story? Just before Colin
2: answers that, can I just jump in? This is actually the reason why I asked Colin, um, to write the chapter. I think, um, because he'd written, um, Bag Eye at the Wheel, which is a, um, memoir, um, about his, his father. Um, and what I love about that book is kind of answers is a long way of answering your question, Marvin, in that he, it dwells in the ambiguity It is, Mm. it is not the idea of trying to, um, make fathers or anybody, you know, um, a hero or, um, making anybody a, a villain. It is what I love about Colin's work. Even when he's doing, when he's writing about black heroes, whether that's or people that we think of as black heroes, like Bob Marley or, um, Marcus Garvey, these are complex human figures. You know, and as such, we need to look at their complexity and need to look at the positives, the negatives and the grades and sometimes not even frame it as positives and negatives, but just Mm. to frame it as the ambiguity of life. And Mm. that's why I, Colin, you know, apologies to you, Marvin, but Colin was the first person that I contacted when I wanted to know about fatherhood because I didn't want something which was, I wanted that complexity and... Mm it might and some of the complexity if i'm being completely honest can be uncomfortable but i was like Mm -hmm. this is colin's chapter and uh, colin needs to write it and so i know colin was meant to ask that but i just wanted to say that in many ways your question is the very reason that i asked colin um to contribute to the book
3: thanks marcus yes so i think my father was, was a very complex man Um, But when I also think about writing, I think about his father and his father before him. And I recognize that we can only go back five generations in our family. The rest is darkness. So I want to illuminate what I can. And I relied on my father, I think, to ground me as to the the challenges of fatherhood, especially for a, a black man in this country, because I recognize that my father came to this country at a time where black people were despised if they're not still despised Mm. Um, and he had to take many things on the chin he had to pull the collar up on his coat and walk on he had seven picnic seven children to feed Mm. and he did an admirable job in that regard he also had a, a fondness for gambling and all all night all weekend poker games so he was, a, he was an interesting character to be around. But I think what's uh, uh, lovely for me anyway is that um, I feel enriched by the life that my father gave me. Um, it, it wasn't all roses, but actually some of the, uh, the grit has, has served me well in my own writing. So um, mm. I, I'd like to have both the, uh, the benefits and the deficits of someone like my father in my life. Mm. Um, because that, as Marcus is saying, and has said, we are all complex characters and um, we can both celebrate and critique and I see myself whenever I write as a a critical friend of black people. I'm not going to give them a pass no one gets a pass just for being black, but actually I I have an understanding of black people because I'm one myself. But um, it was very tricky uh, chapter to write in a way because as you will have seen Marvin if you've read the book that in many regards it was my mother who fathered me and Mm. I take that phrase from George Lamming um, Mm. because I think uh, again with all respect and regard to my father there are many black men who didn't have time to uh, explore their emotional lives with their children because they're out there making the money Mm. Um, and I think that they made this very strong and admirable decision to look after the financial health uh, to, to make sure the children's bellies were full and they had a roof over their heads rather than to look after their emotional lives. Hmm. Um, so, I mean, he did fall down in that regard, but then maybe he wasn't equipped to fulfil in that regard.
1: The the poetic way in which you're sharing your experience of your father is doing a couple of things. One, it's 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 warming me because in essence, what we end up finding ourselves doing. So when Dope Blood Dad started, it's very much about changing the narrative. And the first thing that I, I, I realized it was dishonoring the, the people that had come before by talking about those things. And I think actually, but it also did it centered whiteness and their opinion of our lived experience as why we are here. And, and that's not what we're here for. And I think what we wanted to do is just more people to get through the door and have support in one of the most difficult things that men have to overcome. You know, generationally, we have code, I call it code, um, or experiences that allow us to understand how to navigate a workplace to a degree or to, you know, make money at all costs, side hustles, you know, just navigating life, dealing with confrontation. Many of those things happen and are presented to us anyway, but things that are uh, using more the emotional elements of us are are very much blocked out and underused. And so as you're speaking, I'm hearing this sort of poetic understanding, this sort of yin to the yang of... You know, of the experiences of black men at that time. Now, I'm going to frame this question very carefully. Both of you were a few years older than me. And so I assume your fathers are of a, a, another generation and probably were in the 60s, 50s, 60s, um, uh, growing up. What context do you have of those generational divides so people that were raised in the 50s and 60s while they were here you know you guys in the 80s and 90s entering your manhood and then you know the people now who are just getting to that 20 30 year old mark now what would those leaps and changes be based on you know your experiences or your observations
3: you want to take that Colin no you you have a go Marcus you have a go <laughs> <laughs>
2: thank you um well, first of all, I just want to um, pick up on something that Colin and you were saying um, earlier, which is, I think when we talk about black fatherhood, and this is something that we try and do in, in all the chapters in the book, is trying not to define ourselves in reaction to the white racism that we experience and trying to really find and explore what different aspects of our lives move a black lens. And what I mean by that is that often when we talk about black fatherhood, because of all the racism, because of all the stereotypes that are heaped on us by white society.
0: Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. for JD Power 2023 award information visit jdpower.com/awards only at a sleep number store or sleepnumber.com
2: it is a natural reaction to be reactionary to that and then only frame our lives in the positive to then not actually be true to some of the struggles that that we face and some of the issues and uh, You know, it's trying to say, how can we not just be reactionary? What is a proactive um, and honest approach to the struggles that we have and the the differences that we have, you know, which are independent of how white people and broader society might try and frame frame our fatherhood. Um, Mm. And so in that context, I think our... um, Talking about three generations... I think it's, I wrote about this recently. I did a, I was given the opportunity with Lenny Henry to do a takeover of The Guardian, The Guardian culture section, mm. right? So we did Black British culture matters. And we framed our, ex, the Black British experience in three, in kind of three generations. So the first generation, so that's kind of mine and Colin's parents, it's the Windrush generation. In many ways, they weren't black British. They were black British, but in many ways, they were Caribbean or African people living in Britain, right? You then get their children, myself, Colin, who are black British. Britain is what we call home. Britain is what we know. Britain is where we go to school, right? But there's an uncomfortability still You know, where we're still thinking, you know, it, and I say this was kind of summed up with when Linford Christie, um, in, I think it was 92 when he won the Olympics and ran around this, the stadium with the, with the Union Jack, right? A lot of Black British people felt very uncomfortable. We were, we were cheering on the, the Black British win. We felt uncomfortable seeing the Union Jack. You know, it was something about, mm. you know, so we didn't really feel that comfortable about a, a British identity of the Union Jack. I then go forward to like people that um, if I'd been a younger father, because um, my child is only five, but if I'd been a younger father, then, um, uh, you know, but the generation under myself and Colin, you know, they win the Olympics and they, have, they do not see a contradiction. And they have been able to forge a comfortability with their black British identity. They can win and they can run around with the Union Jack. And there is no conflict there. They, that doesn't mean that they're denying the colonial and slavery heritage of, of Britain when they're doing that. Clearly not. They are sophisticated um, the younger generation is a sophisticated, intelligent generation who know their history, so I'm not saying that at all. But they have found a way to live with those contradictions, which I think mine and Colin's generation struggled a little bit to, to live with those contradictions. And so that would be the easiest way, and, it, and it's a development, and I think it's a constant development of what a Black British identity is. And I suspect that the next generation will find another way of expressing their black British identity, you know, and another way of how they actually connect the, um, the various different identities, black, British, the intersectionality, gender, whatever sexuality, you start seeing people feeling more comfortable in, um, embracing the heterogeneity, the differences of the black British identity as well. So, you know i think what what would be great um and i'm very happy to team up with you marvin is for the for the next book or an offshoot of this of an entire book of black british fathers matter you know mm. because or just black fathers matter and we just go around the world and we mm-hmm. get colin we get you marvin because it's also about embracing that heterogeneity there is not one chapter you know, as, mm. as brilliant as Colin's chapter is, obviously, um, mm. there is not one chapter that can uh, sum up the um, all the complexities and all the different aspects of, of black fatherhood. There you go.
3: Thanks, thanks, Marcus. You covered the ground pretty well there, I think. Um, shall I have a go at answering as well, Marvin? Shall I? Yeah. So uh, I used to say when I was 13, I grew up in a place called Luton, the capital of Britain. I used to say when I was 13 that I was British by birth, but Jamaican by will and inclination. And what I loved about the Caribbean people that I grew up with was they had style. All my father's friends had style, and they had these wonderful nicknames that they lived up to. So my father was nicknamed Bag Eye because he had bags, permanent bags under his eyes. Shine, like all three of us, was bald. Pumpkin Head had a pumpkin-shaped head. Tidy boots was very fussy about his footwear. Anxious was always very anxious. Clock <laughs> had one arm longer than the other. And, and my all time <laughs> favorite was a the guy they called Summerwear, who, when he came to this country from Jamaica in '59, insisted on wearing light summer suits, tropical suits, no matter the weather, come rain or shine. And in the course of researching the book, I asked my mom, whatever became of Summerwear? And she said, well, within a few months, he caught a chill and died. And she said it just straight. Wow. She didn't say it for comic effect because, Marvin, if you're called summer wear, you can't wear a heavy coat. Yeah. You've got to live up to your name. And I love that. I love that idea that they adhere to a sense of themselves <laughs> that was not going to be defined by other people. So I love the way that my father walked. I love the way that these men walked. And hmm. I tried to emulate their walk. And when I was 19, I was born here. But when I was 19, I went to Jamaica for the first time by myself. And I was staying in some sort of boarding house. And every morning I'd walk, it was in the capital, I'd walk to the market and I'd pass the Higglers, the sort of street sellers. And there was a particular street seller who would shout after me every morning, Hey, Englishman! Englishman! Englishman!" And uh, I ignored him for the first few days. And then after the week or so, I asked him, well, what makes you think I'm English? He said, well, you walk like an Englishman. And, <laughs> and I realised, despite my wanting not to be English, I was English mm. or British. So I accept that, but also I accept that in honour of the sacrifices that my parents made in coming here. They didn't come here so that we would uh, deny our right to be here. So I embraced that for them. Mm. Now, I'm going to say something very provocative now, but it's always meant with a good heart. Mm-hmm. And the provocation comes with the title of my next book, which may or may not um, land with people. I might give you the backstory. I'll give you the backstory first. So mm-hmm. my father used to say, and it's relevant, my father used to say to us many things, but one of the things he used to say was, you're being watched. You're being watched to see which way you turn. You're being watched by the host nation, as it were, to see whether you conform to the stereotype that they have of you. So confound that they're a stereotype don't pay attention to what they think you should be doing. That's one thing. Mm. And the other important thing he said to me, which has given me the title for my next book, the other important thing my father said to me again and again and again, Marvin, is this. I'm black, so you don't have to be. (laughs) And and what he meant by that was that he was going to take all the heat. He was going to take all the slings and arrows. uh, He was going to be justified by his phenotype by his colour that's all people would see but in the future Colin people would just see you as Colin Mm. and you were you were judged by the character of your by the content of your character Mm. and I think it's an interesting uh, title some people may worry about that because it might seem to suggest you're not very happy about being black I'm very happy about being black Uh, but equally I say to my my own children I've had a few, um, I'm sure Marcus knows about this, a few trials and tribulations within the BBC where Mm. um, I would not wish that on my children. And Mm. my trials and tribulations came about because I was tall and black, essentially, and was deemed to be aggressive on one occasion at least. Mm. Um, But what's been curious to me, I don't know whether you're going to find this with your children, Marcus, your child, Marcus, is that um, I always assumed, in a way we have this in the Caribbean the great ambition of everybody was to lighten up, to marry out of your class and your colour. Mm. But what's been curious to me is that uh, uh, I've become blacker as I've got older. Mm. And not because I have wanted to become black in, in my outlook, but that's the way that I've been perceived by people who don't know and are worried about me. But what's also curious, and it slightly um, um, complicates what Marcus was saying, um, my children have also become blacker. But in a good way, I think they've uh, they've revelled in embracing their black culture. Um, so my my children can, can cite chapter and verse on Marcus Garvey. Uh, they can they know all of the the interesting songs that Bunny, Whaley, Peter Tosh, and Bob Marley sang, um, and they're they're weaving into their own artistic practice uh, elements of black culture which I knew very little about. Um, mm. So it's curious to me that uh, in a way, I'd say. I'd say it's a good time to be black. Actually, Um, Colin, maybe maybe, I've
2: I've got. I would want to um, tweak the title of your book. Go on, right? So the title of your book, your new book, is saying is "I am black," so you don't have have to to be. be." Right? I would tweak it to "I am black," so you can choose to be. Yeah. Yeah. That's because that's what you're saying with regards to your, your children in that one is, um, your, your blackness is because society thrust that on you. Your blackness is an experience of, of racism. And the other is one of choice where you are actively embracing it, you know, and what you're hoping is that if we can fight and defeat racism, that doesn't negate our blackness. That means we can start just thinking about blackness as something, as a cultural thing that we embrace, a heritage, a history, rather than having to um, see it through the prism of racism. You yeah,
3: know, so, a, so I, yeah, I like the one is a choice. A <laughs> Sorry, go ahead, Collins. It's a good amendment. It's a very good amendment, and I, sh- I should put it to the publishers, and I should put it to my my committee of my children and my my wife, and, <laughs> and, and, Great and, and see whether it sings. I mean, I do. I, do, I share the sentiment behind your your, your intervention, Marcus. Um, uh, we'll we'll see. I mean, I think the the, the thing about it is is that to it mine my, my, the the bolder one is a bit more provocative. Um, it might encourage people to take up the book in a in, in a in a more meaningful way that and adds coffers to my treasury.
1: <laughs> but yeah, but
3: I, I do share uh, wholly share the sentiment behind what you've just said. Absolutely.
1: Can I ask a really important question about? Um, I'm going to refer to being slightly more experienced men in the workplace. One of the big challenges in terms of navigating that space the BBC is is largely is very much a, a white space uh, based on lots of traditions and lots of grandstanding. You both have navigated it even for a period of time. And just in general, I'm very aware of Marcus and these the, the uh, uh, scenario that you faced. Um I'm not sure how much you want to go into it or not. And I don't want to um um and I force you or encourage you to speak before you're comfortable to do so. But I do think it's really important in terms of navigating those spaces and climbing those chains. One of my friends who has done very well in music and we sat and had several conversations about um, where are the men who have done it and retired at the highest level at scale? And I think you're pre-retirement, of course. But then, so the next generation would be... um, Uh, uh, the people who are just before retirement then there's like people like yourselves then there's people like me and there's like a 10 year every 10 years there's a ratio of people who have done incredible things and have done things that and held space that no one else has been able to hold if you had to surmise the the best advice and I appreciate snapshotism is not the best form of communicating but is there, is there something that people can just take away in terms of a perspective of navigating those spaces over a long period of time?
3: Well, shall I jump in first, Marcus? So, Marvin, you may not know this. Um, in the entire history of the BBC, I hold the record for the most disciplinary hearings. I had f- four disciplinary hearings in the BBC. And I kid you not. So,
1: they- Marcus, did you know that? Sorry, because you, you look shocked.
3: Yeah. <laughs> okay, the, sorry, go call the, the third one was the the most shocking one. Uh, the third one was because a manager accused me of being aggressive. And uh, Marcus will tell you that I'm not an aggressive person. And, and when it got into the granular detail, I was accused of looming over this person in an aggressive way. And what was happening was that they were defaulting to some old stereotype which is there in the domain assumptions of many people in our culture. And when it came to it, I argued, because, you know, I had to go through, they invite you, by the way, Marvin, they invite you to a disciplinary hearing, but it's not an invitation you can refuse. So I went along to this hearing, and I made the mistake of being too discursive and arguing over the word aggressive. And the first thing I said was, no, no, we're not having that because that's the word that's been used to describe black people down the years. That's some sort of uh, code that people use all the time to describe us. If I was tall, white, Oxford educated, you say I was assertive, not aggressive. And they said, oh, so you're accusing us of being a racist, are you? So we'll investigate your, um, your aggression, but also we'll investigate your accusation of racism. I said, no, no, I wasn't accusing anyone of being racist. I'm just saying this is what's going on. Anyway, it went on for about six months. They interviewed everybody I knew. Everybody I'd worked with in the BBC. And after six months, the uh, the head honcho called me into the office and reluctantly told me the verdict. And the verdict was, the case against you is not proven.
1: (laughs) Did it come with an apology?
3: That's That was the apology. So here's my point, to, uh, to the final point to you, Marvin, about um, the experience for other people. I decided, because many of my friends say, look, you need to get out of the BBC. They're coming for you. They're not going to stop. And I said, no, no, I'm not going to be kicked out. I'm not going to be forced out. I'm going to stick and stay so that the next person has an easier time. And I hope that's true. I hope that the next person... Wool has an easy time. I mean, I'm sure Marcus had his own trials and tribulations. He's, he's scaled the heights much higher than I did, but it comes with a price. Um, mm-hmm. but I was prepared to, uh, to weather the storm of the, the, uh, the, the attrition, the war of attrition against someone like me in order that, um, the next person didn't have to do that. It's kind of, it kind of way it builds on the title of my book, actually. So in a way, uh, I, I was black in order so the next person could choose to be black who comes into the BBC without being criticized and lambasted and, uh, <laughs> slaundered, slaughtered, mm. uh, being the target of some sort of, um, campaign to get you out. I know it's mm. a long answer, but there's more to be read in the,
1: in the book that is forthcoming. That's fantastic, Marcus. Do you have uh, any insight for our listeners y- on navigating those spaces? Yeah,
2: I. Um, so I think in terms of navigating white spaces, there's no um, whiter a space than the Houses of Parliament, and so mm. I will, if you, if if I may, I'll just read a little bit from Dawn Butler's chapter where mm. she um, wrote for the book Black British Politicians Matter, and what she says is. When I first became a politician, people told me that I mustn't be too black. I had made it into the oldest democracy in the world, but now to participate, I should, quote, leave my blackness at the door, end quote. I was told I should be careful about people thinking I had a, quote, chip on my shoulder, end quote. I was told you need to blend in. You shouldn't stand out. I shouldn't talk about race issues. I should talk about other issues. And this is the really important part for me. The irony is even if I'd wanted to leave my blackness at the door, so to speak, the Houses of Parliament have constantly found ways to remind me of my race from the time I became a politician. Right, and so I think that's really important to recognise that even if we think that somehow we can play the game, that somehow we can um, like, somehow not be that black, we will be reminded of our blackness. Colin... Um, or other people will be reminded of their blackness every day. And I don't mean that in a positive way, you know. And so we need to embrace our blackness. And the only bit of advice is that we need friends like you, Marvin. I need friends like Colin, you know, because life is hard, you know, and we need um, emotional support. We need psychological support. Sometimes we need spiritual support. You know, because and we need people who understand where we're coming from because they've had similar experiences without me having to explain to them that um, aggressive is a code word that is often racialized, that someone can just um, hear that and just be like, I hear you. Have some rum cake with me. Have some black (laughs) cake with me. You know, (laughs) I hear you, you know. And so we, we need So the best advice I can give is that, one, you can't run away from your blackness. And two, let's run to it and let's run to it with our friends because our friends are our best defence. So that's why I love being, that's why I love your podcast. That's why I love chatting to, have long chats with Colin. You know, Mm. when I called up Colin to see if he'd be in the book, it took about two minutes for him to agree. And then we spent another hour and a half just (laughs) catching Mm. up and, and talking about life and blackness and fatherhood and and what have you, and the struggles that we uh, we experience. So, yeah, gather your friends around you.
3: Yeah, I'd endorse that. But also, uh, in this chapter I wrote, I was actually thinking about Marcus Garvey a lot, actually, and about Garvey as a kind of father figure. And in a way, um, whether I'm conscious of it or not, I've become a Garveyite, and having left the BBC... I've recognised that we must just do things for ourselves. So I'm now running an organisation called Writers Mosaic, and it's for writers who are not ethnic minority writers. We are writers of the global majority. Mm. We are the centre now, thank you very much. And we're not going to wait for anyone to give us a leg up.
1: That's powerful uh, Colin Marcus Thank you so much I almost feel like Normally in my podcast When I have guests I have to do quite a lot Of heavy lifting <laughs> I have to do quite a lot Of uh, prodding and asking And actually I felt like I was a, a passenger On the conversation Between two incredible minds So I, I honestly From the bottom of my heart Thank you This is one of the best ways To start the day If I could book this in weekly Feel free to let me know I will put it the calendar Invite in your diaries I think one of the most Important things and Something that I'm seeking At this point So I'm 37 I'm slightly looking for the next 10 years of my life people who have that experience that cold I'm trying to spend time with more people who are over 60 so I really want to understand what the next you know I feel like I'm creating my 50s right now and I may not be fully present to it and I really want to understand what the impact of my day-to-day choices and existence can do to create negative and positive things potentially in the future so that's something I'm very present to. And I felt like I got a, a window into that today. So I felt very honoured more than anything. Um, so where can people get your book? Where can people find you? I think that's a really important thing. I assume the the mothers, our podcast is majority listened to by mothers, by the way. Um, uh, where can they find you and harass you about your your wonderful wisdom and intellect?
2: Um, you can get the book at um, online, obviously uh, on um, I'm not meant to say Amazon because i know there there are evils with with amazon but a- anywhere that you buy your books waterstones um a uh, a whole heap of um black independent um books booksellers um we had a beautiful um black independent bookseller at the at the book launch um and yeah, you can get it anywhere you get your books basically in terms of harassing me um the best place. To do that, and I'm going to regret this, is that my my DMs on Twitter are open. I don't know why I do that. I'm very foolish, um, but my my Twitter is at Marcus Ryder, so it's not difficult. At Marcus Ryder, um, and in terms of booking for for podcasts and stuff like that, um, just go through Faber and Faber, who are the who are the publishers. They line up all the publicity and, and all that type of stuff. So, so yeah, very contactable.
1: Well, and where can we find you, Colin? Do you want to add your home address as well, just in case? <laughs> <laughs> well, I live
3: in Brighton. Um, but you can get me on Twitter at, at Colin Craig Grant. But if you, just, if you just type Colin Grant into Dr. Google, I'll pop up. But I would advise everyone to check out the new website that I've launched with my friends, the Writers Mosaic. That's all one word, writersmosaic.org.uk. Um, and I, and I, and I would say, uh, that I'm heartened today that, that I now have a possible new title for my book, courtesy of Marcus. So, <laughs> I'm Black, so you can choose to be is, um, is beginning to work its magic on me thank you Marcus
1: <laughs> it's, it's one way to justify your last hour for sure That's what I do <laughs> um, thank you both <laughs> thank you both uh, for being here today uh, I'm sure everyone will go and check out the book there are some incredible contributors to it so it's, it's almost literally uh, the people that I want to hear from on these topics so uh, I look forward um, to sharing more about it with you all um Marcus, Colin, until the next time, hopefully there'll be a new book um, uh, that we get. Apparently I'll be invited something to do with fatherhood, so we'll all catch up and have tea then. Great,
3: and Marvin, (laughs) Marvin, it's been a pleasure.
1: Likewise, Marvin, (laughs) and maybe you'll invite me on when my book is out in October. I, I demand that you come and, and share if i in fact you may have to come back and revisit all your books <laughs> so one by one uh, we're gonna make that happen but we're more than happy to have you um really nice to meet you colin
3: great well uh, my mother used to say find your people and i think i found my people this morning thank you
1: oh look at those people saying nice stuff oh okay that's my day started all okay. right thank you all bye no, no black podcast